Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Good morning, everybody. This morning, as we jump back into our um, series, Remember, I actually began this series with a question. And the question was, could you imagine life without the ability to remember? I mean, it's really one of the great gifts, isn't it? The great wonders of the human brain, its ability to encode and store and retrieve memories. This morning, I want to flip the question. Can you imagine life without the ability to forget? There are only a handful of known people in the world that have what is called SAM, Superior Autobiographical Memory. And people with SAM have the ability to vividly remember and recall every single detail that has occurred in their lifetime. So it's a condition actually that's very rare, but it's known as hyperthymesia. And people with this condition can't forget. So I was watching the interview Uh, with one woman who is known to be diagnosed with this, and she was actually uh, talking about how this works. And the person interviewing her just asked her and gave her a date from like 1977. And she could remember in vivid detail everything about the day. She could remember the weather. She could remember what she wore that day. She said it was the day of her first date with this particular guy. She remembered in vivid detail every single event as though it were happening in real time. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm personally not sure that I would want that condition. There are so many things in life that I am grateful that I have the capacity to remember. But there are some things in my life that I would just as soon forget. And fortunately, God has created the human brain with the capacity to do both. We both remember and we forget. God actually has created our brains to be able to remap or rewire its neuropathways and create new memories, and create new normals. And also, God has given us the ability to collapse and eliminate some that are best that we forget. Now, have you ever thought about God when it comes to memory? I've heard some people, in fact, more than one person suggest that when God forgives our sins, God also forgets our sins. And though that may sound very comforting to us, it is theologically inaccurate. And actually, for me, the idea that God can forget is not very reassuring. Think about it. If God forgets my sin, what else will God forget? And worse than that, what happens When God's lapse of memory returns and he remembers again, I would be in a world of hurt 
if God suddenly remembered what he forgot. The Bible does not portray a God who forgets. The Bible portrays a God who chooses not to remember. Now that may sound like semantics to you when you hear that, but they are world apart. They are not one and the same. The Bible tells us that God is omniscient, which means God is all-seeing and all-knowing. Nothing escapes God's notice. Nothing escapes God's knowledge. God is also perfect. And perfect people don't forget. But what God does do is the Bible tells us that God actually chooses not to remember especially our sins. Two verses in particular that really punctuate this. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. I will be merciful to them in their wrongdoings, and I will remember their sins no more. Isn't that good news for us this morning? And let's also look at this verse from Isaiah. Chapter 43, verse 25. I am the one who erases all your sins for my sake. I will not remember your sins. God does not remember because he forgets. But God does not remember what does not exist. That's what the Bible suggests. It says that God actually erases all of our sins and that God will not remember our sins. This is what we mean when we say that by placing your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, you are justified. You are declared just as if you have never sinned. I want you to breathe that in deeply this morning. I want you to sit in that reality for just a moment. Just as if. I have never sinned. I want us this morning not just to remember what Jesus did for us, but I want us to remember what Jesus became for us. At the cross, there was a holy exchange that took place. Paul the Apostle actually tells us about it in 2 Corinthians and what happens. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's sit on this for just a moment. Jesus who never sinned, became sin. And after you are digesting that, chew on this thought for a moment. You and I became righteousness. 
The Bible does not say that we do righteous things. The Bible says there is actually a transformation that takes place through God's Spirit because of what Jesus did and more importantly, what Jesus became. At the cross, not only were we delivered from sin and from our sins, which is enough for us to eternally celebrate, but through salvation, through Jesus Christ, we are also delivered from our own sin nature. And we are given God's nature. We actually are, there's this holy exchange that takes place where God takes on, through Jesus, our nature of sin, and we take on his nature of righteousness. Now that doesn't mean we'll never sin. It doesn't mean we'll never fail. We do all the time, right? So you say, why do I still sin if Jesus took on my sin nature and I took on God's nature? We sin because we're in flesh. And because the flesh is at work in us, fighting and warring against God's spirit. But I want us to understand that there was this exchange that took place. And as we're looking in this Easter season at remembering what Jesus did, let's not forget what Jesus became. He became sin. And that did not just happen on the cross. It actually began hours earlier. As Jesus is beginning to metabolize what it is that he's becoming. Following his final meal with the, Pas the Passover supper that he shared with his disciples. We read this in Matthew's gospel, what happens next. Matthew 26 verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. It is not an accident that this was the location Jesus would choose to have his very final prayer meeting with his disciples. It is not an accident that Jesus goes to this particular garden the night that he knew he was going to be arrested. Do you know what Gethsemane means? The word Gethsemane literally means olive press. It was located at a base of a mountain called the Mount of Olives. And the word Gethsemane means olive press because it was the place that often was used to press out the olives to be able to get that pure, precious olive oil. In those days, it was a rugged stone vat that had a large rock that would be used, and that stone would go over those olives again and again and again and again until their flesh had been completely vanquished and destroyed, until there was nothing left. It was obliterated. But it was out of those olives that came this precious oil. Jesus chooses Gethsemane. 
as a visual illustration of what was about to take place inside of him. Gethsemane gets a lot of press time in the Gospels. In fact, all four of the Gospels talk about Gethsemane. Both Matthew and Mark's Gospels devote 21 verses to it. In Luke's Gospel, we have 15 verses, and John gives us 12 verses. So nearly 70 verses in all of the Gospels are devoted to the events that happen in Gethsemane. Almost more than what happened at the cross. And that's not insignificant. Because what was taking place here was that Jesus was beginning to become sin. So that we could become the righteousness of God. Now we don't have time to talk about all 70. But I want you to think of the 70 as each separate pieces, individual pieces of the same puzzle. And there are certain pieces that are worth this morning as we remember lifting out talking about these pieces because they're so significant. As we remember this Easter, there are at least five things in Gethsemane I don't want us to ever forget. The first thing we want to remember is we want to remember the sorrow. I want us to remember the sorrow. Matthew's Gospel Chapter 26 continues, verse 37 and 38. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I have a conviction. And here it is. Troubles in life do not shape your character as much as they reveal it. When we walk through our circumstances, our trials, our tribulation, they get to the heart of our character. What we do when we find ourselves troubled and sorrowful tells a great deal about who we are. Jesus is troubled. And the Bible tells us there's something in this moment that he admits that too few of us are actually willing to admit. I know that I am. The Bible says he admits that he is overwhelmed. We use that word pretty glibly, pretty loosely, pretty casually. But Jesus here at every right to acknowledge that he felt overwhelmed. Because the idea of being sorrowful to the point of death is actually illustrating what Jesus was feeling. The idea here that's being communicated is that it was soul-crushing sorrow. That's what Jesus was experiencing. Soul-crushing sorrow. Have you ever experienced soul-crushing sorrow? If you have, you don't need anyone to tell you what it's like. You don't need anyone to explain it to you. 
you have a full understanding, at least to some degree, of what it feels like. And let me just say, it isn't enjoyable. Jesus is crushed. His soul is so grieved. For those who've never experienced that, let let me just tell you what soul-crushing sorrow is like. It is grief that is so heavy and so painful that dying would feel like a healthy alternative. Death would actually seem far less traumatic than what you're experiencing. That's what Jesus here is experiencing. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of grief. He now is beginning to become and take on our sin nature. And it's hard. And it's painful. And it's heavy. It's a burden. I've been struck anew this Easter season with a verse of Scripture that describes Jesus, who's the Messiah that will come. Isaiah, the prophet, actually tells us, he says, he will be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. What does that mean? It means that Jesus experienced a lot of sorrows and it resulted in deep and enduring grief. Now, I don't know about you. There's a lot of things in life that I want to be known for and remembered for. I would love to be remembered as a man of God. Love to be remembered as a man of faith. Love to be remembered as a man of integrity, but a man of sorrows? Nobody's signing up for this. Nobody wants this. And yet Jesus becomes this. A man of sorrows. Very familiar, fully acquainted with grief. Let's not get so caught up in the divinity of God that we lose his humanity. That we forget that he came and wrapped himself in flesh. And in this moment, he's taking an aspect of our nature that is so crushing. Remember the sorrow. Let's never forget, let's remember the anguish of Gethsemane. Luke's gospel tells us about the anguish. Luke chapter 22, verses 43, 44. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The author of this gospel, Luke's gospel, is a medical expert. Luke was a Gentile doctor turned follower of Jesus Christ. So this guy is really dialed in 
on the humanity side of everything about Christ's life, all the way from his birth. If you want to read about the most human side of Jesus' birth, go to Luke's Gospel. If you want to read about the most human side that he experienced in his death, go to Luke's Gospel. This was of particular interest to Luke. And what he's suggesting here is that Jesus is so overwhelmed with grief and sorrow, the pain is so intense, that he actually is experiencing a medical condition known as hematidrosis. It is a a noticeable, it is a documented, well-documented, historic medical condition that occurs when there is intense, extreme mental anguish and emotional stress. It occurs when the capillaries in your head that are actually feeding blood to your sweat glands, they explode because of the internal pressure, causing an intermingling of your sweat and your blood. Jesus in the garden is not just simply pouring out his heart to God. Jesus in the garden is pouring literally out his life. Where is life found? Life is found in the blood. Remove blood from your body, you're not alive. Stop the blood flow, we're done. And let's never forget that before Jesus Christ ever bled on the cross for our sins, he bled on his knees in prayer for our sins. He is crushed to the point that what is coming out of him is getting literally squeezed right out of his life. The very life of Christ is beginning to be poured out in Gethsemane. And it's all happening because of anguish. Jesus fully is giving himself to be crushed. That his own flesh is getting crushed like those olives get crushed. And the circumstances of his life are squeezing out of him what's in him. That's the second conviction I'll give you this morning. Circumstances of your life will always squeeze out of you what's in you. What, what, what happens when we find ourselves under pressure has a way of bringing out of our hearts, out of the interior of our life, what really is there, what maybe nobody else sees, but God sees, and others will experience. And they'll experience it most when we're in those intense times of where will we fall? Will we we simply move forward in our own courage and power and and self-will or will we drop to our knees like Jesus does and doesn't just pour out his heart, but he pours out his very life? We need to remember the sorrow. We need to remember the anguish. And thirdly, we need to remember the surrender. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. Verses 35 through 36. Going a little farther, 
he fell to the ground and prayed. In fact, he doesn't do this just once or twice, but the Bible says three times he does this. He goes and he prays that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, I want you to notice how he begins his prayer. Abba, Father. How Jesus starts this prayer at this crucial hour is very revealing. Because it seems almost out of place for Jesus to use this particular term. It's the only time in the Gospels that we read anywhere that Jesus calls his father, Abba, Father. It's the only time in the Gospels Jesus uses this term. And it is what it was a very common, ordinary term in the Aramaic language. In fact, this word Abba was such a common, ordinary term, it was used of children. It's a childlike term. So instead of Jesus using the Aramaic term for an adult son to his elderly father, Jesus rather opts to use this term, which one New Testament scholar said is like the chatter of a small child. It is further proof positive that Jesus was really God's son. Because it would have seemed so out of the place and even disrespectful for Jesus to use this term Abba with Father, with, his, with God. And what Jesus here is doing is Jesus is actually talking to God like he's family. It's because he is. This is his father. And what does he pray? Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Of all of the prayers that you and I can pray, this is the most difficult, by far. Because here's what Jesus is saying. I want this, but I need this. I, I want something different, but I need your will above what I want. This is a prayer of letting go of control and power. That's why it's so hard. The prayer, not my will, but your will be done, is a prayer of actually giving up control of the outcome of your life. Now, now let me ask you this morning. If I am not doing God's will, then what am I doing? It's not a trick question. If I am not doing God's will, then I'm doing my own. Or perhaps worse, I'm doing someone else's. 
If you are not doing God's will, then what are you doing? You see, we have two options. Really three if we want to bring other people's imposed will on us into the equation. What Jesus here is doing is he's saying, I'm letting go of control. I'm giving up power. The word we use is surrender. And there are actually two aspects of surrender. So, so the first aspect of surrender is to cease to resist. Right? So when, so when someone is being arrested, what is the very first thing that they want that person to do? Cease resistance. The second aspect of surrender is not just ceasing to resist, but is submission to the will of a higher authority. What Jesus does here in this prayer is Jesus does both. He does not just submit, but first, before he can submit, Jesus must cease from resisting, pushing back, holding on, saying, I want it my way. Jesus had to be willing to let go. And listen, that's really insightful when it comes to knowing and doing the will of God in our lives. Here's what I mean. Before we can know and do the will of God, we've got to first let go of our own. Before we will ever know what God's will is, we've got to let go of our own self-will that says, I want what I want the way I want it when I want it. Now, around here at Grace Crossing Church, we have a, a term we use for this. The term is deference or indifference. It means that I'm willing to let go of my plans, my agenda, my desired outcomes, my preferred preferences. I'm willing to let all that go, no matter how strongly and emotionally tied I am to that, to have God's will done. That's what matters more than anything else. And listen, you cannot submit and surrender unless you have the capacity not to surrender. In other words, you've got to be a person that in yourself has the ability to resist for there to be true surrender. That's what makes John's statement so powerful. John chapter 10. No one can take my life from me. Listen to these words, Jesus says. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to. And I also have the authority to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Listen, Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was a willing volunteer. That's really important for us. He was not simply subjected without a will to God the Father. He was given all the abilities that we have and all the experiences that we have, including human choice. He had the capacity to say no. And that's why it's so powerful that he sacrificed it voluntarily. He had the authority to lay it down, his life, and he also had the authority to take it up again. So I would just ask you a question. Where in your life are you ceasing 
to, where in your life are you still resisting God? And so finding it difficult to know his will. Where in your life are you still resisting God, resisting to surrender to God's will? That would be a good question to prayerfully ponder this week. There are two final things that I want us to remember, and, and then we'll wrap up. We want to remember his sorrow. We want to remember his anguish. We want to remember his surrender. And his surrender brings what happened next about in the garden. We want to remember his betrayal. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 47 through 49. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the, high pre- the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the man, the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. It was not the Jewish religious establishment that crucified Jesus. It was not the Roman government that put him on the cross. It was someone from his inner circle. It was a trusted friend. In fact, so trusted was Judas that Judas was the treasurer of their organization. Of the 12, he was selected as being most reliable, most trustworthy. Talk about the depth of betrayal. And how does he betray him? He doesn't point him out to identify him. Rather, he identifies Jesus with a kiss. Now, in that culture, a kiss was a very appropriate sign of love and affection. Still is today in many Middle Eastern cultures. And at least no less than four times in the New Testament, we are told to greet one another with a holy kiss. What Jesus does here is he perverts the kiss. He greets Jesus with an unholy kiss. And in that moment, for all time, what was intended to be a very innocent, loving, affectionate way of showing kindness to another became an act of betrayal and rejection. I don't ever want us to forget the betrayal. Judas perverted for all time the kiss with an unholy kiss. The final thing we must never forget is we must remember the loneliness. The loneliness that Jesus felt. One of the saddest verses in all the narrative of Gethsemane is this. Matthew 26, verse 56. 
Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Can you stop here for just a moment and think about this with me? All of us in this auditorium have experienced a degree of loneliness from time to time. And perhaps the cause of your loneliness came because you felt abandoned by someone you trusted, maybe a friend, maybe a family member. But very few of any of us have ever been betrayed simultaneously by every single person that we felt we could trust. You talk about the depth of loneliness. He's abandoned, deserted by all of his most trusted friends. And in our loneliest moments, what are we left with? When we are all alone, all we are left with is our thoughts, our emotions, and our memories. That's all we have. And I suspect in this moment, Jesus is remembering. Everyone has deserted him. And in that moment, with his own thoughts and his own emotions and his own memory, he's going back. And he's finding strength, I'm sure, from Scripture that he learned as a young boy. He learned the Hebrew Scriptures. He learned verses like this. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. No doubt he's remembering verses like this. Though he slay me, though he afflict me, yet will I trust him. And verses like Psalm 46. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. Everyone else is left. But God is there. And I suspect God's whispering to his son in this moment, be still, be still, be still and know that I'm God. God bless each of you. Thanks for being here. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.